Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You're listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title and loss for that matter. Uh, Today, we're looking at 2010's Australian Open, as well as the path to that Grand Slam. But first, I got two things for you that have just, one, one came while I was driving over here to my studio, and the other we talked about a little bit yesterday. Any updates in tennis right now that you're aware of or that that's worth sharing? Um, it seems like we are moving ahead towards the first, the West, the Cincinnati Masters, the Western and Southern Open, and the U.S. Open, at least on the men's side. Uh, the women, WTA Tour is about to get underway on the clay in Palermo in Italy. There are some uh, travel restrictions linked to that tournament, so somebody like Simona Halep is not going. There was a whole issue about that. Uh, but it seems like we are going to move towards a, a some something of a summer hardcourt season. The big first event on American soil is going to be on the WTA. It's going to be in Lexington, Kentucky, of all places. And you've got this loaded field, Serena Williams leading the way and a bunch of other big names. Uh, and then that will lead into Cincinnati. We'll see how many players opt to play that. And then the U.S. Open right after that. Cincinnati, of course, will be in New York. It's never shy to keep uh, reiterating that. Um, we're going to see different lists. Uh, the Cincinnati entry list just came out for the men. Uh, most of the big names are on it. I'm sure more will withdraw as they opt to just maybe stay put in Europe. Uh, already Ash Barty, the WTA number one has said she's not coming to the U.S. Naomi Osaka has indicated she will be here. She's a former U.S. Open champion. So, I mean, it's sitting here late July. It seems like, knock on wood and all that, that we're going to have a U.S. Open. We're going to have a Cincinnati Masters. There will be tennis played in the U.S. It's going to look a little bit strange. The player fields are going to be very different, but hopefully everybody stays healthy. It seems like the precautions are being followed, and that's really all you can do right now. Basketball starts today. Baseball has started. Baseball has been getting some headlines, though. Uh, Certain teams are sort of just swimming in coronavirus. What do you make of what's going on with baseball? And does it portend badly for other sports? Well, one team is is really, uh, you say, swimming. And that's an unfortunate pun because it's the Miami Marlins, the team that's got, you know, over a dozen cases in their traveling party. And they've had to stay put in Philadelphia, as we sit here recording this. Uh, just before you and I hooked up today, uh, the Phillies, because they had played the Marlins last weekend, uh, they've been testing everybody. And they said two people associated with the team have now tested positive, uh, no players, but one coach and somebody who works in the ballpark. So the Phillies are now shut down for an indeterminate amount of time. The entire organization. Uh, yeah. I mean, like they're not playing games for the foreseeable future and we'll see how long that is. Um, that becomes a problem as one of the uh, Phillies reporters, I think Matt Gelb of the athletic pointed out, you know, this is a very condensed schedule best case in terms of trying to cram all these games in. But now if the Phillies aren't playing, it only gets harder to fit everything in. So it remains to be seen how that's going to work. Now, fortunately, the baseball outbreak has been limited really to the Marlins, but now you're seeing it pop up among the Phillies. I, It's tough to say if there's a direct correlation to tennis. It is in the fact that it's not going to be a bubble. You know, you've got the NBA and it's bubble in Orlando, which seems to be working so far. Lou Williams and his wings accepted. Uh, 
and the NHL <laughs> up in Canada. Did you um, do you know about my personal feelings about Lou Williams? Did, is that why you snuck no, that I, in there? No, I oh, okay. didn't know you had. Uh, all right, all right. I'm sweet lose, Lou sweet Will. lose my guy, but I did, I did cringe, uh, like like I am wont to do during a Federer speech uh, at his recent behavior. Well. Somebody, it might have been Bomani Jones at ESPN, made a point that, you know, of all the people this could happen to, it's good that it's Lou Williams because everybody likes Lou Williams, where if this is somebody else, it, it's probably going to be a different story. Great point. Uh, if it was but, but everybody Smith. likes J.R. Smith, Dwight Howard, and a lot of other people, um, but everybody loves Lou Will. So whatever, everybody kind of shrugs and chuckles. Um, but back to the serious part, is that a bad sign for tennis? I would say not directly, but it's, I think, a warning of, you know, almost like a worst case scenario. Now, apparently baseball is investigating what the Marlins did that somehow caused this to erupt like this. Uh, Derek Jeter, who runs the team in Miami, said that we were fine in Florida. Problems developed on the road. They played exhibitions in Atlanta before going to Philadelphia. So we don't know what kind of problems we're talking about. Um, I think it's certainly just a, a warning of how vigilant you have to be because of how serious and how contagious this is. I did like from just like I was reminded of what it felt like to be a, a sports fan across the board. When you see the headline that the Dodgers clear the benches, um, that was, it took me back to like a bygone era, Brian, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. For any of our listeners who don't know, um, maybe if they're overseas, the Houston Astros uh, cheated uh, a couple of years ago. They won the World Series. They beat the Dodgers in the World Series. Uh, pitcher on the Dodgers, who's not on the Dodgers back then, uh, threw high and tight to, I think it was Correa, Carlos Correa, one of the Astros' better players. There was some chirping. And like most baseball fights, everybody cleared the benches and nobody actually threw punches. Everybody just kind of postured and preened. You're not supposed to do that this year because of social distancing. Interesting. Joe Kelly got suspended for eight games, which wow. is pretty harsh. And Joe Kelly is any... one of the best pitchers in baseball. No, he's not one of the best pitchers in baseball, but no. he's a good reliever. He's not one of the – but it's also notable because Joe Kelly got suspended eight more games than any Astros player who cheated to win the World Series. So I think a lot of people took issue with that. Um, but yeah, it, that was a moment where it was like, oh, okay, yeah, like the juices are flowing again. It's not, oh, we're just great to be back out there. There's, and another really fun thing, especially with the Astros and Dodgers playing who don't really like each other, there's no fans. So you hear everything that is being said, players, coaches, um, not always clear for broadcast, but it finds a way of getting on there because there's no crowd covering up the noise. So that's been a, a fun perk of the first week of the baseball season. Very elegant uh, segue back to the main one of the main topics of our discussion today. Uh, us being able to hear everything Roger Federer said to the umpire in the Del Potro final at the U.S. Open yes. in 2009. Um, but last thing I was curious about on the way over here, I was thinking about it. I saw a Nike commercial that I mentioned to you a few minutes ago as well off mic. And um, you, you mentioned Naomi Osaka. Uh, she's a back-to-back champion, one of the young names in women's tennis. I'm just generally curious, who's the future of women's tennis? Uh, Serena Williams is obviously, you know, not on the back nine, she's maybe in the final two holes of her career, like Roger is. Who are we looking at in the future? You mentioned Ash Barty. Give me three or five names that are going to be shaping out the future of women's tennis. Yeah. And usual caveats apply about health and all that stuff. But I'll say Osaka, I will say Ash Barty, 
both of whom have already won majors. I'll say the defending U.S. Open champion and Bianca Andreescu from Canada. And we'll throw Coco Goff in there as well. And what she's done at you know the age of 16, announcing herself in terms of winning tennis matches, but then the role she took in some of the racial justice protests in the U.S. She's got a real maturity around her. Seems like her parents have done and the support team around her have done everything right in bringing her along at the right pace, not trying to rush it, not trying to go too fast. She's still limited in terms of the number of tournaments she could play because of the WTA's age rule. But maybe one of the tennis writers um, made a good point on Twitter. Maybe it was Ben Rothenberg from the New York Times. I'm not positive, but that maybe this year off was maybe a good thing for her because it, it cooled down some of the hype and it could help her just focus. But I will, uh, Posit those four as the names to watch. Andrescu, Barty, Osaka, and Goff. Osaka certainly was impressed the heck out of me when I saw her in those two uh, championships. And the way she handled the Serena drama. Yeah, that was tough uh, for her. That twenty, uh, that was 18 U.S. Open final with Serena's uh, meltdown with the chair umpire. But then, like you said, back-to-back, because she then comes out, wins Australia the following year in 2019. And this was going to be a huge year for her because she's Japanese. At Jack- Tokyo Olympics, uh, companies were lining up to get behind her in terms of sponsorships, endorsements. So there was going to be a lot of pressure on her, um, which is something she's talked about, you know, trying to manage it and figure out how to manage the pressure. But this was going to be a huge year. But Fingers crossed the Olympics can go forward next summer. I think 2021 will still be a, a big year for Osaka. Brian, you are roundhousing these segues like Jean-Claude Van Damme over here. Uh, the last thing I want to talk to you about before we get into the Wimbledon 2009 aftermath. Last time we talked about most dominant runs in sports, I came up with two names and one in particular uh, is relevant as of yesterday. Woods, of course, averaged six wins a season over a 10-year stretch, which I think would qualify him to be in that camp. Um, and then, of course, there's Michael Phelps uh, across three Olympics. Um, both of these guys were routinely leaps and bounds ahead of everyone else, very much like Federer was during that 03-09 stretch. I bring up Phelps, though, because there's a documentary that came out on HBO that Phelps narrated. Did you see it? I did not yet, um, okay, and then I'll I would that. like to watch it. Uh, I watched it last night, and I was uh, maybe we can talk about it on another episode. But it was very interesting. I think there's some tie-ins to the um, individual sport of tennis as well. Um, it basically has to do with these athletes that are built up, and then they are sort of just abandoned, for lack of a better term. And then what the aftermath of like reaching the pinnacle of sports is like for a lot of them. We'll talk about it when you watch it. Sounds good. Uh, after. Wimbledon 2009, Roger has a quarterfinal loss at the Canada Masters to then seven-ranked Sangha. Uh, I think I've asked you this before, but where are we at with Sangha? Still a window? Uh, no, I, I think the well, window to be a... What, what window are you talking about? A like Grand a major Slam, champion? A major champion. Yeah, no, that, I would say that window is closed. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's still a, a competitive... Uh, like I, I think, can he be in the top twenty? Uh, you know that window is probably closing, but uh, he's still out there grinding it out. It'll be interesting to see just once we pick up, like what everybody looks like, like, where everybody picks up from. Like you know, did all this time off maybe mess with with people's motivation? Um, like, I, can he get back in the top twenty? Uh, it would take a lot, and it, at this point in your career, do you, do you want that big lift? Hmm. Um, so 
remains to be seen, but I would say the major championship window has, has closed for some. Okay. And I only ask because, uh, this episode and in a couple, a couple of the next ones, this was his prime. This was his well, not pr- prime as a, in air quotes, but this is when he was in the second week of a lot of these tournaments playing against the best. Okay. Roger wins the Cincinnati masters beating Novak in straight sets. Uh, one of those sets was six one. Um, but as we know, Novak's diamond was just starting to form under the surface of the courts he played on. We fast forward to the U.S. Open 2009. Again, propping myself up to be able to discuss this with you. Roger gets through a field that included Hewitt, Robredo, Soderling, who took him four sets, and then four-ranked Djokovic. Roger handled that match in straight sets. Let me jump in. Uh, so I would I would say that win against Djokovic is the high watermark for Federer against Novak in his career, and it was it's been a I don't know I hesitate to say downhill from there, but that was the last time where you're watching Roger and you know he I wouldn't say he owned him, but that's the match where to set up match point Federer hit that that tweener winner like with his back to the net. I mean, one of the greatest shots he's ever hit, one of the most famous shots you'll ever see. And he stands there like regal after he hits it, like just with this, like, I'm the man, look, I own you, look. And you could just see Djokovic's face like, I wish he hated that moment, loses the match. Federer goes on to the final, Djokovic out of the US Open. Um, But since then, Federer, Djokovic has had the upper hand on Roger. Just when you look at the results, like if you're looking at the moment where it shifted, yeah. that's the last moment. I mean, this is a really weird comparison to make. And usually when you start to make a comparison like that, you you shouldn't do it, but I'm going to. And we can always, you can cringe all you want. Not comparing anything, but just in terms of X's and Y's. Battle of Gettysburg, you know, the Confederates were winning. It's a turning point of the U.S. Civil War. I think it was over three days. The Confederates were winning, winning the battle. And they, there's a point in the battle, it's referred to as the high watermark of the Confederacy because everything was going right. And then after that, everything went wrong. Again, not comparing, but just in terms of how things can shift where everything's going in the right direction and then it goes away into a really wrong direction. Um, not that it went totally wrong for Federer. I mean, he's still beaten Djokovic, but that's where everything stopped going his way. Like after that, the one that looked that jumped out at me after this US Open, and I'm skipping ahead in the story, uh, Basel, the Swiss indoors, Djokovic beat Federer like on his home court. I mean, that is the ultimate shot across the bow. Maybe that's the sign of what was to come, the 2010 U.S. Open, when Federer's got the match points and Djokovic beats him. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But if you look at that one last great moment for the Federer dominance against Djokovic, that tweener is kind of where I where I circle it. Was that comparison too weird? Do you, do you understand? No, no. I was here? just going to okay. say, have you been getting into U.S. history this summer? I've always been a big uh, U.S. history fan. So I've always. I just thought maybe you it. read a book or something that was like what Gettysburg was fresh in your mind or something. No, I just did my own uh, lift. I, I read the first of the, I guess, four Robert Caro, uh, Lyndon Johnson biographies. Oh, Master of the Senate. No, the first one's uh, Path to Power. And I think it's Means of Ascent, then Master of the Senate or vice versa. Um, but yeah, it was good. Yeah, Robert Caro's Robert Caro's awesome. Those books are yeah. I read a, I read the Power Broker yeah. a couple of years ago. That was really good. Living in New York, it's about Robert Moses, yeah. who you don't realize essentially designed New York and the roads around it for for better and worse. 
Um, but yeah, it's just Carol writes about power and that's really fascinating. That is me. his genre. That is his brand. Um, he has a great memoir that came out a few years ago that he wrote. It's working. It's called working. Yeah. I love, I, I, I tremendous respect for him. Oh yeah. And, uh, I read master of the Senate. That's the only one that I've read out of the four LBJ ones. Um, okay. Okay. So U S open final. Yeah. Beach Djokovic in straight sets. Has that regal moment on the court, standing in front of him, like, you know, Ollie over Liston, if you will. Uh, surely he's punching his ticket to a sixth straight U.S. Open. But, no. Look, Delpo's upper echelon, and I think I've said this to you, is one of my favorite players to watch. Um, but it was unexpected. And we can get into that. I'm curious what your thought is on on, the, on that match and his performance in general, Delpo, that is. Um, Roger had bested him six straight times coming in. So no problem, you're thinking. Over five sets in about four hours, uh, Del Potro punched his ticket, correct me if I'm wrong here, to the Hall of Fame with a U.S. Open victory and performance for the ages. Frame his performance, Brian, this tournament and his legacy as a result. Um, I mean, it really was like a legacy-defining tournament, but I think what's most remarkable is he beat Nadal and Federer to win the tournament in back-to-back matches. And that was after he had to beat Marin Cilic, who's a future U.S. Open champion in the quarterfinals. So you beat three future, at that point, Nadal hadn't even won the U.S. Open. So three uh, U.S. Open winners at different points in their careers to win your first major title in the same year where you won your first ATP title in Auckland. So this was, I mean, remember, he had not even turned 21 yet. And we talk so much. This is around the time where we talk about, okay, it's taken these guys a little bit longer to mature. Uh, he's one of those, almost like a prodigy, where he's still 20. But because of the physical gifts of his forehand, um, he's able to just wear down Federer over a five-set match. And you could just see how ornery Roger was, how frustrated Roger was. This was another one of those Monday finals. We're in that streak of Monday finals because of rain. Um, this was a wild U.S. So I almost wish in terms of like content for our episode that we could talk just all about the 2009 us open because the 2010 australian opens i would say relatively like oh, huh. quiet yeah uh this this is also the us open where serena williams was defaulted in the semifinals against kim Kleisters. Uh, so there was a whole lot going on was this the this finger point one yeah, yeah, with the chair umpire, where she kind of yeah, because the chair umpire called a footfall. Yeah, um, I mean, Kleister was going to win the match anyway, um, but yeah, that was wild in its in itself as well. Um, and then you have this, you know, these blockbuster final fours of Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, Del Potro, and everybody's thinking, oh, we'll get Federer, Nadal, Del Potro. Not only does he spoil Federer, Nadal, he spoils the Federer party, and he wins the U.S. Open. I mean, this is just like a heavyweight, heavyweight fight. Hall of Fame, as a result, if this, if this is as far as he goes, uh, Grand Slam-wise? I would say no. Um, and I think it's, be, I mean, certainly he had Hall of Fame talent, but I, I do think the longevity isn't there and it's not his fault. Um, it's the injuries. I mean, he got back to the US Open final. He's played some great matches, but he's just not been able to stay healthy long enough. And Okay, is he still a great player? Absolutely. He's a major champion. He's a major finalist. But I just think that prevents you from the Hall, or in my book, that keeps you out of the Hall of Fame. I want to briefly mention Del Potro's path to this final, the notables at least. His dominance ratio, by the way, for all these matches was well over one, for whatever that's worth. 
Um, again, clinic after clinic. Monaco, 331. Ferrero, 333. Chilich lost the first set, but then took the next three straight. And then Nadal, and I texted this to you, 222. Again, like, was that just pure Del Potro dominance or was something wrong with Nadal? I think this whole this whole year and this whole time, like Nadal's knees are always an issue and always, I, I think, a question. Also playing on hard courts, not the best um, because it, like a hard court surface in this matchup for Nadal is kind of the worst case because Del Potro has the power. And even though the hard courts are slower, um, they're still fast enough that he, like Del Potro is not a great mover compared to, certainly compared to Nadal. So he's able to get away with that a little bit more. So it's just not a, a great matchup anyway. And if he's maybe a little bit compromised physically, that might be an issue. The final, uh, this match actually was 11 years ago, which is kind of crazy, but I remember it like it was yesterday. I couldn't work the next day. Um, I was going through a tough period in my life, but Roger just, Roger losing, just like doubled down on eliciting emotions. Ah. Like, I don't know what to say. Um, observations from the match though, looking back at it with the ability to have some distance. Um, Roger's running around Delpo's second serve early and often. This is an observation that we've talked about with Agassi against James Blake. That one movement where this is a, we're talking milliseconds here, but the, but the skill that these guys have to recognize where the ball is going to go at the toss, uh, and then to just crush it for winners is something that is, can't be overstated enough. The, like the ability to figure that out, or I don't know if there's a combination of guessing and skill and luck and all that stuff that's involved, but it's just brilliant to watch when you see it. Uh, Roger was doing that early and often. And the takeaway was that he's got this. Early in the match, it was his for the taking. Um, Delpo's forehand, of course, was the story. It became the story in the presser as well. I saw this looking back. The whole match was being played three to six feet behind the baseline. From my vantage point, it was suffocating almost because my guy was kind of getting pressed back against the, the wall. I thought it was interesting, though, Brian, that Roger shrugged it off afterward, saying it wasn't anything he hadn't seen from him before. Posturing, or is there truth to that? I think there's probably truth to that. Like, he does put up a, a, like a bit of a front. I think all players do, just to be like, okay, you're not in my head that much. But I, I think he was fair. Like, listening to him after the match, he was kind of like a little bit combative, but it sounded at least like an honest combative, if that makes sense. Like yeah. he was still speaking his his feelings, but he was a little bit abrasive. He wasn't doing the next question. No, but you could tell he doesn't want to, he didn't like sitting there as the loser. No, not used to it, you know? Uh, right. Roger takes a 3-0 lead after a long second game on Delpo's serve. And he takes the first set with an ace. Again, the assumption here when you're watching this for the first time through, you assume this thing is going to be quick. The beauty of tennis and comebacks, right? Second set, Roger breaks him again right off the bat. Uh, So he's picking up where he started. He's down throughout, but then gets it to 5-5, Delpo that is, and wins in a tie break on an emphatic forehand winner. He's pumped up. He's high-fiving the fans. And I, I can't help but wonder if a little bit of that got under Roger's skin because it will play into the stuff that I'm going to ask you about at the end of this, specifically Hawkeye. We need to put Hawkeye to bed once and for all today on this podcast, Brian. Third set, Roger wins it 6-4. Fourth set, it gets to a tiebreak again, but barely. Okay, Roger is starting to unravel a little bit. 
He's yielding a lot to him earlier than you would imagine. He's not going for points as much, or he's not going for the ball as much. I was wondering, again, is something wrong with him? Did he tweak something? Is he injured? There was no trainer. But that was what was going through my head. The tiebreak, or in the tiebreak, I should say, the umpire allowed them to replay a point after a controversial late challenge. Apparently, Del Potro was like getting feedback from his box that he should challenge stuff. And there was this like gray area, or I don't know how gray it is. Maybe you can shorten it for me. But basically, there was this, there was this back and forth between them. On one point, Del Potro puts his arm up, it kind of saying like, I wasn't ready or, you know, this, this and that. And then later on in the match, Roger does the same thing where he kind of intimates like, I wasn't ready to play the point. And the umpire's looking at him, staring straight at him and like, you were in the position. Um, bunch of mishits resulted by Roger, um, and Delpo gets it to a fifth set. Where did it go wrong? Delpo goes up 3-0 in the fifth, then 5-2 on Roger's serve. What happened as you saw it from the fourth set to the final point? I think it was, it's almost like that runaway train, just building momentum. And the way Del Potro was playing, you're almost waiting for him to wilt. Like, okay, this guy's never been on this stage. He's playing Roger Federer, who just broke the record for the most majors. He's going to fold. He never folded. Like, he just kept it all the way through. And because he had the weapons and the gifts and he was playing so well on that day, that once he broke Federer in the fifth set, I wouldn't say it felt over, but you're thinking that was the point where it didn't dawn on me until then. I remember watching this match and the whole time thinking like, okay, Federer's going to win this match. And then when Del Potro goes up 3-0, it's like, wow, this, this might actually happen. Um, and I think it was just, and Federer said it afterwards, like he was just so consistent on the day that that's how he was able to win the U.S. Open. The only other person, Brian, that had beaten him in a final to this point was Rafa. Something Major else. Final. Major final, thank you. Something else that Roger shrugged off afterward. I wonder, something else I wonder about this, we, we talk a lot about how difficult it is to win the U.S. Open just because of where it is on the year. And that's true every year. But I really wonder just how drained Federer must have been because when you look at his 2009, he gets his children, gets married, wins, that, wins the French Open, completes the career Grand Slam. So that probably takes even more out of you. You win this unbelievable Wimbledon final for the ages. Um, he's, he had to have just been spent by the time you're in the fifth set of the U.S. Open final when you've been playing on hard courts for the last six weeks. Like, I, I really do wonder just how much, like if this match is played in a different year, like if the lead up to it was not as dramatic as it was for Roger, like if they played this a year later and assuming Del Potro is healthy, like I, I think maybe he wins. Like I just wonder how much the unique circumstances of this year hurt Roger. It's a great point. He was, after all, two points away from actually winning the match right. in this. So again, a testament to his greatness in terms of health and longevity and, and, and the ability to be prepared for the moment. He mentioned it in the press surge as well. Like, yeah, the ones that I lost, I lost in five sets. So if you were to tell me, like, would you take those chances again? Kind of, yeah, I'll take those any day of the week. Like, I, it, this is not a bad outing for him by any stretch of the imagination. But it does, it does, to your point, suggest fatigue and just exhaustion. And you said this early on in this project, 
that the U.S. Open is the, is the one of the hardest tournaments to win precisely because of what you just said. It's the end of the year. And I think Roger knew it because, like you said, like the way he talked in the in the after the match in the press conference, um, and maybe it's because it wasn't Nadal, but you know, you see him falling short in the Australian Open, falling short in the French Open. He's crying. He's emotional. This looked like Federer after any other loss. Where yeah, he's disappointed, but he's not that outward show of emotion isn't there. He just looked like a guy who was just had been through the ringer because that's what he had been through. He did say in the presser, "quote You know, life goes on." Like he was. Again, I was uh, his fans. I'm sure there was more than just me that were clearly more emotional about it than he was. But I, I do like what you kind of said indirectly that the there's the consolation prize is that Nadal didn't win a title. It was someone else that won a title. Um, and so, like as far as his sort of his the upper crust of where he was at at that point wasn't being challenged, at least not to that point. Um, Rogers, look. The black with the red trim, you've mentioned it in the past. Is this your personal favorite? It might be. This is a very good look. That The black shirt with the red tri- red collar, the red, I guess it's called a placket. That's part where your shirt button's on the front. Uh, very sharp, crisp look from Roger. I'm going to reserve my final analysis until we get through this because I need to see. I, I've forgotten during this wilderness period, he had some looks that I liked. And- yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, there was a... One of the first, like when he was wearing, I think that U.S. Open final that he got to, or maybe it was he, when he, I think it was a Uniqlo outfit where he's wearing, it's almost like a, like a wine colored shirt. Like that was a good look. Yeah. One of the first Uniqlo outfits. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's coming. But let's say this is the clubhouse leader because yeah, I, I still want to see a few more, but clubhouse leader right here for me. Darth Federer is on Mount Rushmore, no matter what. We'll just, we'll just lump the, the black on black look. The red trim added a nice little bit of the red lightsaber effect, if you will. Maybe he doubled down on on it. <laughs> Delpo's look, real quickly, the black tank top with the yellow band. Any desire to be Nadal-esque? Is that his own thing? Uh, what do you think about tank tops in general? I think this was the end of the tank top era in tennis. And like Delpo, Delpo was like one guy who was just like stretching it out a little bit longer. Um and I say stretch because he, at somebody his size, it works for him. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, he's a he's certainly very strong, but he's not like Nadal. He doesn't look like Nadal he's not in terms cut of like, like Nadal. Like he's stretched over a six foot five, six foot six, seven, whatever he is, frame, whereas Nadal's in a more compact package. So the sleeveless, his sleeveless, where it's not like skin tight, it works for him. Um, sleeveless in general, I, let's stay away from, but this look, uh, it, it worked. I like the colors. Yeah, I, I was I was down with it. Looking back at it, it's in, in in my mind when I saw it yesterday, it's aged well. That's that's the thing because and the fact that he hasn't won another major, it's like you then begin to associate it with like you see that shirt and you think like oh that's Del Potro when he won the U.S. Open, like when uh, Stan Wawrinka's won other majors, but those hideous shorts that he won when he wore the French Open, like you associate those with Stan. Brian, did Roger let this one get away? Should this podcast be 21 episodes, in other words? Um, yeah, maybe it should be 23 or 24. Maybe it should be 17 or 18. Like, there's so many of those matches that could have just gone one or two other ways, and we have a different story here. Uh, he did say afterwards that maybe this is one he will regret um, after this U.S. Open final. Could he have won this match? Absolutely. Like you said, he was a few points for victory. Um, he just wasn't, Chris, wasn't good enough in the fifth set. Yeah, it's a match he could have won. A couple more highlights from the Roger Presser afterward. 
mentioned the whole thing was a huge shrug off for him. He was asked about his forehand. And I only kind of keep coming back to this because we now know that that Del Potro is a client under Roger's uh, umbrella agency or sports agency or talent management, whatever he has, whatever the official rubric of what they do is. Management um, company. Management company. Thank you. He said that he, he, he called him out by name, too. He said Gonzalez and Blake and Nadal have a better forehand. He kind of discounted Del Potro's forehand. I would argue that Gonzo's forehand was, was insane it, 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 and still is, stands at the test of time. I would argue that this performance, though, in the U.S. Open against him was one of the best forehand dominant performances that he's ever had to play against. Fair? Um, Certainly better than Gonzalez, who he beat every time. Yeah, but maybe he's looking at it. I mean, maybe he doesn't want to give him too much credit, or maybe it's looking at it like that is like the the single weapon, whereas Del Potro is obviously in this match able to round things into a, a complete enough package to to beat Federer. His crossover so backhand yeah, was pretty nasty too. Yeah, exactly. Like the forehand was working, but then he had other stuff going for him on the day. Uh, so that, that is an interesting question because, yeah, I, I would think like as as just like a – in a vacuum, yeah, you're going to take Gonzalez, but maybe over the course of a match, you take Del Potro. That's tough to say. Uh, finally, this is what has been bugging me um, since the beginning, and, and hopefully you can provide some modicum of closure here. Why does Roger hate Hawkeye? Explain it. And then what does he want instead? He, I, I wonder if he's cooled off or if he's just gotten a little quiet about it because he doesn't talk about it as much. Maybe he's just accepted it. So he is one of the few players left who played before they brought in Hawkeye. Uh, and I think it was 2006 or 2005. Um, and he just has never liked it. He doesn't like stopping the match. He thinks the, the calls that are made on the court by the official should be the way things go. Um, he has never liked it. He also was never very good at it. John Wertheim makes a, a good point in his book, uh, Strokes of Genius, that he almost uses it like, like a reset button. Like you challenge, like he would challenge a ball that, like the call was correct, but he'd be able to like transfer his anger towards missing a shot towards the Hawkeye instead of himself. So there's that thought. Now in this US Open final, he maybe comes as close to blowing his top on court as you're going to see him when he thought that the chair umpire gave Del Potro too much time to um to challenge the call and during the changeover he had used some four-letter words just about not how he wasn't having the the chair umpire's explanation surprisingly he was not given i don't think he was given a warning uh like a conduct warning um but yeah, that was, it's on YouTube if you want to check it out. It's like LeBron, you know, the, they let the stars play. They're not going to call a foul late in the game. And, you know, it's that, that kind of a thing. He did say directly to the umpire, I think the umpire, someone said like, you know, please be quiet or something. And he said, I'll talk when I want to talk. You don't tell me. I think he gave him the hand. Like he, um, yeah. And it's a yeah, LeBron point you make is interesting because that was sort of the argument with what happened to Serena in the U.S. Open final a few years ago where, okay, letter of the law, that's coaching, but some players, that won't always be called. Like Serena herself didn't do anything wrong. It was her coach. Yeah. Um, so, But it's more about, okay, how you react to the call. Like the fact that she reacted the way she did to the call, that was what really became the problem. But the initial call, yeah, it's like, okay – I guess there's no superstar calls here. That's sort of the way it, no Jordan rules. If you no will. Jordan rules. Great analogy. Um, you're talking about the Naomi Osaka match, right? 
Yes, the yeah. 18 final. With Patrick Mortoglu and the Yeah, so he scandal. gave her the signal like move up, like come in, which is coaching. Uh, Carlos Ramos. And you can't do that. No, you cannot do that. Carlos Ramos, the chair umpire, saw that and gave the coaching warning to Serena. And she was really upset at the time. And then it was almost like she didn't, I think she thought it had been like taken away, but it never was. So then that's when later in the match, she went back to it and was really losing her top about it. About being accused of cheating. Yeah, that's what she said. Uh, Yeah. So what do you like? What is the tennis cognoscenti verdict on what happened there? Then is there one? Um, I think the tennis cognoscenti verdict is that it was a harsh, but within the lines interpretation of the rules. Like it's not always called, but once it's called, like the issue is how she reacted after it was called. Like if you're going to call that, that kind of overtakes everything else that happened. Exactly, before. and I think that got in the the mainstream discussion about it when people maybe outside or who aren't as hardcore into tennis saw it, they thought that, you know, Serena's getting jobbed, but she wasn't. Um, you could, it's like, basically if a cop pulls you over and you're going 28 and a 25, which is a, that's the analogy I always told people about this. If you get pulled over doing 28 and a 25, you're going to think like, this guy's really like busting my chops here. But what I was technically speeding, but if you then, react to that news by driving off at 80 miles an hour and like a high speed chase that becomes a bigger issue. And that at a different level is kind of what happened in that U S open final. Hmm. Bright side of the road for Roger in loss. He finds a way to come back, uh, to victory, uh, in 2010's Australian open Fabrice Santoro's last grand slam appearance. Roger beats Andy Murray 3-4-6 to get number 16. Let's focus on Murray, because like you said, and like we both agreed, it's kind of a ho-hum tournament, as some of them are. Murray's path was interesting to me, though, for a couple of reasons, because there's a couple of names in particular. Kevin Anderson, he faced him in the first round, beats him in straight sets. Anderson was a qualifier, but he's a future Grand Slam champion, as we know. Uh, Jiquel, 1-4-3. Sarah in three sets, Isner in three sets, and then Nadal uh, retired in the quarterfinals, but he was being dominated by Andy Murray up to that point. Is this more? Is this more of like the lingering stuff, or was there something specific in this match that made him retire? It was the knees again for Nadal, uh, something with the right knee, and this was again like around that time where there were some questions. Then, of course, Nadal responds from these questions in January of 2010 to win the ensuing three majors of the year and complete the calendar slam. Um, But yeah, he was just not... This was one of those times where Nadal just goes through that that period of not being at full fitness, not being sharp, and this is a time where it caught him out. This whole year kind of was a wilderness for him in a way. Nadal? Yeah, Nadal. No, this is like one of the best seasons of all. He wins three majors. No, no, I'm talking about 2009 and then ending with this tournament. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Leading up to this. Yes, that I would say is like he beats, you know, the high watermark came in January 2009 when he beats Federer um, in the Australian Open final. But then to lose, you know, loses a couple times on Federer, loses the on clay to Federer, loses the Soderling. Um, And then, yeah, he just isn't blessed with the health. He just isn't able to put it all together. And he, Okay, a shuffling start, scuffling start to 2010, but then he rips off one of the greatest years of all time. Hell of a quarterfinal lineup, by the way, in this tournament. 
names on names on names. Federer, Davidenko, Djokovic, Sanga, Roddick, Chilic, Murray, Nadal. Like, it's just like, these are the cast of characters for this new decade, which we're, we just literally have started. Sanga, I thought it was interesting. Sanga beats, mentioned, we mentioned him earlier. Sanga beats Djokovic, but then gets handled by Federer. Go figure. The final takeaways, Brian, on Andy Murray and uh, whether this was the point of ascension for him officially or whether it comes later. Um, Because outside of the Grand Slams, I noticed a trend where he is able to pretty handily beat Roger Federer. What do you make of that? And what do you make of Andy Murray's ascension? Well, different story, of course, outside the Grand Slams. You go best of three sets instead of best of five. So there's that is something to consider. What does that mean? He's better in like he's a, he's like a three round boxer. No, it's just it's just easier to win a best of three sets match than a best of five. Like if you start strong, come out strong, then okay, you win the first set. You just have to win one of the next two sets. Whereas best of five, there's just more tennis you have to worry about and you have to play. Um, is this? I would almost say the 2008. U.S. Open finals, more about his ascension. Like he had won, like that was his big coming out party that summer when he won. He went back to back the summer hard courts uh, semifinals in Canada. Then he wins Cincinnati, wins the Cincinnati Masters, gets to the U.S. Open final. Um, Because of that, there's then so much pressure on him as, you know, this big hope for the first major winner in the U.K. since from the U.K. since Fred Perry uh, wins a couple of Masters again in 09. But he still hasn't doesn't get to a major final in 09. So here he is, 2010, and he gets to the Australian Open final playing Federer. Um, so I would say he's it's like he's knocking on the door, and everybody's waiting for him to break through. Uh, but you still have to wait almost three years, three plus years actually, for that breakthrough to come, at least to the major level. Because we you know we talk a lot about consistency, and week in week out, you know Murray is one of the best players of the last 20 years. Um, he brought it every single week. He had his own health problems, of course, but you know, he finished 2016, number one in the world. He's won Wimbledon a couple of times. He won the U S open. He's gotten Olympic, a couple Olympic gold medals. Uh, he, he's an all time great that I wouldn't say gets short shrift, but is uh, the leader of the class of, Oh wait, he played, you know, at the same time as maybe the three greatest players of all time. Murray's probably in the top 20 greatest players, top 15 of all time but just happened to be doing it with Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. Great way to put it. What aspect of his game is the most memorable for you or notable? Uh, his defending, his, his speed, how fast he was. It's a game, actually, that's very similar to Federer's game, where he, I, I think just his defense and his speed, those are the things that you always think about, like how he's always going to be getting to the ball. He's going to put get the ball back. It's just really, really tough to beat him. Um, and then it just becomes a matter of, okay, in this final, like he just was a little bit, not tentative, but it's just he wasn't playing. Like he was almost playing Federer's style of tennis, and Federer was able to pick that apart pretty easy. I mean, Roger played really well in this tournament. Um, but Murray played, you know, just kind of not good enough to beat an informed Federer, but not many people can beat an informed Federer. So in, in some cases, there's no shame in that. But when you look at how he was able to have the career that he's enjoyed, it's about the foot speed, the quickness, the instincts, the defense, and the smarts. I mean, just a really smart, tactical, instinctive player. He was up a few breaks in the third set. Took him two sets to figure out the match a little bit. 
got up some breaks, but he couldn't hold. Third set goes to a tie break. Uh, it's 6-4 Murray in the third set. And Federer saves, obviously, two set points. They get it to 9-9, then 11-11. And there's just some crazy shot making on both sides, to be honest with you. Like, there's something that you see in Andy Murray. There's like a, almost like a going the distance thing with him there. Like, you can see that he can play with this guy at a very high level. And it's no wonder why he wins those other tournaments. Or it kind of, you can see that shape, at least the kernel of that taking shape here. Uh, finally, 13-11, Roger wins his fourth Australian Open. Up to that point, Brian, interesting statistic, uh, he had never lost when up two sets. And at that point, it was 156 matches in all. Um, I don't know how that ranks up against Nadal and Djokovic, but I would imagine that based on the longevity of his game so far, how long he's played, that he would hold that record. Fair? Up two sets, 156 matches total. Yeah, that's... Never yeah, losing. Yeah, that's one of those like untouchable records. This was his eighth, by the way, his eighth consecutive Grand Slam final. Again, another just sort of like the I, I think I've kind of resigned myself to the point with this GOAT debate. We're doing it as like a friendly sort of back and forth during a time when there's been no sports. But um it, it's it's safe to say that the debate is amorphous at, at this point at best. And when it's yes. all set, when it, all three of their careers are said and done, then we'll be able to have a more objective look at it. But these are the kinds of things that will always come up. And that's safe to say being in eight consecutive Grand Slam finals, being in umpteen consecutive quarterfinals, being in, you know what I mean? Like that is, that is something that I think that Roger, in the final analysis, whether he has the most Grand Slams or not, his ability to always be in the hunt for the longest period of time, I think will be undebatable, undisputable. And that goes, that speaks purely and specifically to his health. Yeah, but it's more than just health. Like, it's not like he's like. And mental and in between the ears, like you right. talked about last time. But you're also responsible for your own, in many ways, for your own fitness and health. So he's able to do the necessary things to get his body to where he can play at this tip-top level week in, week out. So that's absolutely a big part of the myth with Federer. Like you talked about with the with the quarterfinals, that streak, I mean, 57 in a row. I, I don't see that being broken. 46 semifinals. Um, and this, just this streak, like you talk about just being in major finals, like it's, and being close and being in them, by the way, like going right. five sets in the right. finals, the ones that he lost, uh, well, at least a few of them. Most of them. Yeah. Um, no, it's, that is part of, you know, it might be the strongest ammunition for Federer's, you know, maybe the greatest of all in the greatest of all time argument. That is certainly the strongest ammunition is just what remarkable levels of consistency he brought every single week over not a period of months or years, but almost like a decade, decade plus. One other observation that I've had on, on this final with Murray in particular was um, the juxtaposition of their two serves. So Rogers is just so easy and elegant. And obviously to execute and emulate Rogers serve is extremely difficult, but he just makes it look like air and feather. Whereas Murray's serve looked very la labored and very forced and just, but that's, I think a lot of that is also just like style. Um, and that's 
just how Federer works. Like he looks just better than everybody, like in more fluid, more smooth. Whereas Murray, it, it looks a little bit more labored, like you said, but that also doesn't mean it's not good or that it's just what works for him. Like even I was talking about like his foot speed, like if you just to the naked eye, if you watch him, like he doesn't look super fast. Like he looks like a guy who is, yeah, he's moving, but, but then you realize like how fast he actually is and how quick he is. He, he doesn't always look like it, but he's world-class. So I think a lot of that just is, is more like eye test stuff. It's interesting. You just said what you said about Federer, like it's a style thing. Now this is tongue in cheek, but like when he was developing his game, like, was he looking in the mirror? Like, I want my game to look smooth? Or was this just the natural ergonomics of his, the way that his body handled a racket and a ball, it came naturally? Or was this, was this sculpted in some way? That's a great question. I think it's probably the way things happen. Because otherwise, I think everybody would be trying to look like that. Yeah, um, exactly. Even Nadal's dad, I think, has said, Roger is the most beautiful player to watch. You know, if anybody could look, yeah. if you if you could model the way a tennis player looks, you would want to model it off Roger. Fascinating thing that you just made me think of is like, did Roger plan this somehow? No, like because you know I always say, and he got the nickname, which probably unfair, like Baby Fed Grigor Dimitrov. Like he's a great looking player to watch. Hasn't worked out for him in terms of winning majors or you know really delivering at the Masters level like week in week out. Um, but I think it's just more the way you, your body works, the way your body develops and how you're going about things. Like it, it helps that you have a one hand backhand that just looks better than a two hand backhand. So I think it's more just like, I don't think he planned to, was worried about style points. It just it was a happy accident. Eight, very happy accident. Yeah. Eight consecutive Grand Slam finals and he wins this one. Were you at all surprised by all the retirement talk that started after this win? No, because it's something that is always a topic of conversation for any great athlete. Um, you were seeing some of his contemporaries start to retire or at least wind down their career, had the family, had gotten to number one in the world. You can see you know, how exhausted he was. He had the career grand slam. It's, it's kind of just thinking like, okay, what else does he have to do and over the ensuing decade, we learned uh, still win some more majors and make truckloads of money. Um, so I think that's uh, been a good decision for him to stick around. So I, I'm not shocked that that talk began, but I don't think that it was, I think it was just kind of like idle speculation from people just looking for something else to talk about, aside from the fact that this guy's winning all the time. Did the truckloads of money begin in earnest after this period, or was it already uh, sort of steadily I flowing? think the, the flow was well underway, but... Over the last, you know, he founded his own company. We talked about Team Eight, the management company. The decade of 2010 to 2020 is when the money went exponential. Hockey. Stick. I mean, the the money, you know, 2010. I'm sure, like January 1st, 2010, he I, would have been like he was genera generationally wealthy already. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it went up big time over the next decade. Uh, Rogers, look, Brian, the turquoise shirt, the white shorts. You feeling it? I like it. Murray, black tank top with a uh, yellow band. No, that wasn't Murray. No, not no, uh, no, no. That was Del Potro. Murray's look had the geometric shapes on the shirt, which is not my favorite look in general. The Adidas stripes. Yes, um, I was okay with it. This is also around the time that um, Murray had taken the Adidas banner, where they essentially I think we talked about this before. They had 
kind of chosen him over Djokovic. Um, so Djokovic had moved on. These were in Sergio Tacchini at this point. Um, yeah, not my favorite shirt. I like the white better than the blue. Um, I forget where, yeah, but like the white, like he, he came out wearing the blue shirt with the yellow trim. And then he changed during the match to like a white shirt with blue trim under the sleeves around the side. That's a better look. The blue and yellow is just meh. We are um, at the precipice here. You were kind enough to remind me of that yesterday. Um, and it's the straight item, uh, if you will, of this episode. I believe there's like a 10 Grand Slam lapse between this final and Roger's next one. Um, do you want to yellow brick road this for me a little bit here? Um, we are entering officially, officially the wilderness. There's four more Grand Slams in Roger's uh, future, but they are over the stretch of a decade as opposed to the stretch of two or three years. Um, so let's break the yellow brick road into two parts because, yeah, there are now going to be three more majors in 2010, all four in 2011, and then Australia 2012. So that's 11 before we get to Wimbledon 2012, where Federer beats none other than Andy Murray in the final. Um, so let's break it into two, and then when we come back next time, we can pick up the road. So essentially the rest of 2010, which is interesting, um, Roger goes out and we'll just, for the purposes of time, we'll pretty much limit this to the, to the majors. Um, so he goes into French open as the defending champion. You've got, but I just want to jump in. He loses a lot of non-majors too. So it like quantify his losing streak in general. Sure. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Well, when we say streak, we mean not titles. Not He's titles, not losing not titling. his first matches. Okay, so after Australia, he loses his first tournament. After that is Indian Wells. He loses to Marcos Bagdatis. Loses to Burdick in Miami in the third round, or round of 16, so his third match there. So that's probably his most dismal sunshine double showing ever. Uh, loses to Albert Montañez on clay in Estoril. That's, that's like a, a head-scratcher. Uh, then he goes out, gets to the final at Madrid, loses to Nadal. So that's like a, a result that you can understand. Um, then he goes to Roland Garros. He beats Stan Wawrinka back-to-back on clay, Madrid and Roland Garros. But then in the quarterfinals at Roland Garros, so the semifinal streak is over, he loses to Robin Soderling, who he beat in the Roland Garros final the year earlier. We were talking about how Soderling unfortunately gets considered as this like Buster Douglas type, but he was a really good player for about two or three years. And this is kind of peak Soderling who gets back to the finals, but Nadal gets his revenge. Uh, so then Federer goes on to grass and the ultimate sign that this year is going awry loses Hala, uh, which is a tournament he owns. He's Say won what? It t- yeah. He loses 10 to or Hewitt, 11 right? times to Leighton Hewitt. Um, so just really strange results. And this is the time where people are, you know, really picking up the, is he done? Like what, what's going on here conversation. And right around this time, he hires Paul Anacone, who was the last coach of Pete Sampras. He's an American. He's worked with a lot of players, but Paul Anacone, uh, I don't think they ever won a major together, but he played a really big role in kind of preparing Roger for this next phase of his career. Um, because you do things as a young player that are going to be a little bit different than as an old player. Um, so Paul Anacone comes on board. They worked together for a while. I just want to double check that he didn't win anything with Federer. Oh no, he did. Excuse me. Uh, so we'll talk more about Paul Anacone next time. Um, because they did win 
if it's appropriate, can you, uh, when does the saber come into play? Does it, that's way later? down the road. Okay. Yeah, okay. That's like the second wilderness. Um, yeah. So, um, Paul Anacone comes aboard. There's talk about a different racket because, you know, Federer has been using the same racket for his entire career. But as you get a little bit older, maybe you want a bigger racket just so you can get to a few more balls. Uh, Roger likes the control that his old racket had. It's a little bit smaller of a head, but it was like a, a just a very, it was a racket that nobody was using anymore, a racket size that nobody's using anymore, but he's still a few years away from that change. Um, so then we go on grass in 2010 and Federer loses to Burdick again in the quarterfinals at Wimbledon. Who won uh, that Wimbledon? That's, that's Nadal. Uh, Nadal wins his second Wimbledon, beats Burdick in the final, Burdick's only major final. But this is Federer's first time not winning Wimbledon since, or not getting to the Wimbledon final, rather, since 2002. And that's the real, whoa, what's going on here? Um, Canada that year loses to Murray in the finals after beating Djokovic in the semis. Uh, wins Cincinnati against a wild card, Marty Fish. You're thinking, okay, he's got some momentum going into the U.S. Open. Um, Pick through a, a pretty easy draw, but then in the semifinals, U.S. Open, he's got two match points against Djokovic. Djokovic just absolutely goes for it with these big returns that Federer essentially called lucky after the match. Djokovic infamous slap shots, right? Yes. Well, Djokovic did it two years in a row to him, uh, but this was the first time. And this is why I was talking earlier about how the U.S. Open final or semi in 09 was like the high water mark. And then yeah. it just kind of, because now look a year later where Djokovic is saving two match points. This loss was devastating for him. Devastating. But I will say that based on the way that year was going, I don't think Federer was beating Nadal in that final. Um, Fair. And that's where Nadal completed uh, his career grand slam. Roger in the fall loses again to Murray in Shanghai and the Masters there. Wins Stockholm, wins Basel. So some normal service restored. He beats Djokovic, by the way, in that Basel final. So some revenge for the previous year. Loses to Malfis in the Paris semifinals. And then he does win the ATP finals uh, in London, beating Nadal in the final, one of the, the few opportunities Nadal's had to actually win that tournament. Um, so, yeah, again, a year that most people are going to sign uh, sign years of their life away for. But for the Federer fans, it's different. And for his, his, his body of work, this is not something that he's right. used to either. This is not classic Roger. Uh, begs the question, like, would you, if, like, should he have retired then? No. I mean, if you wanted to, sure, but no, like the, we, as we saw by the four other majors, this he's is won. still a super high level of tennis. Even if he's exactly. not winning, he's still advancing. He's in the second week. He's in the hunt. Um, but there's, there are people that are ascending. You're at a 2011's Australian open. I'm sure you're going to mention too, or, well, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll how about save we that? do 2011 because there was some interesting stuff in 2011, uh, when we will lead into 2012 Wimbledon with Perfect. how 2011 went for Roger. You just did 2011. All right, you just did 2010. 2010. So we'll start with 2011 at the top of uh, next episode, which will be the uh, Wimbledon 2012. Yes. Yes. There's a lot more losses, which again, will probably make this a little bit sweeter, uh, this victory certainly, because he had to go through this gauntlet of, you know, questioning. Uh, What's the movie uh, where you question... Uh, this is, this, you, you did your, you had your Gettysburg thing. So now I'm going to have my crazy film analogy here. It's like the never ending story, the swamps of sadness. If you, if you overthink what's going on, you're going to sink into the quicksand. 
This was that. Okay. He has this. Do you remember that movie? You know what I'm talking about? I do about? not. I, I was enjoying where you're going with that, but I don't remember the movie. So there's this movie called The Never Ending Story, and there's this horse, and there's this swamp that they have to cross, and it's called The Swamps of Sadness. And the whole MO of this, to be able to get through this swamp, you have to think positive. You have to not get in your own head. Once you get into your own head, and once you start questioning, the swamps of sadness take over. And this is, there's more swamps of sadness for Roger, but as we'll know, his horse is not going to die. So for those of you that yes. know the movie, I think it was a uh, Wolfgang Peterson film too. So it was like a uh, high nice. caliber director, but it was a childhood movie of mine. I recently okay. introduced it to my son. So it's top of mind. Um, so we will start off with the 2011 season and we will explore the 2012 Wimbledon and all the stuff that came before it. Did we miss anything on this one or are we good? No, I think we're good. Awesome. Last time in Australia for a while, but we'll get back here. Oh, we do get back? And we get back a couple of times. All right. Yeah. Start to say goodbye to all the venues. Well, we already, we have to say goodbye to Roland Garros. We won't be back there again. We only uh, have two venues left. We're only here in Wimbledon rest of the way. Here in Wimbledon. We don't, but yeah. we have some final losses, right? We have right? finals, um, yeah, everywhere. Okay. Uh, but yeah. Okay. So we'll say goodbye to the venues respectively, win or lose as we get there. Thank you as always, Brian. Stay well in your neck of the woods, and I'll see you next week. Thanks, Vic. Come on!